Political values play a huge role in a country's attractiveness to another nation. For instance, countries like the United States and Lithuania have pointed to Taiwan's commitment to democracy as a rationale for strengthening ties, praising Taiwan as a like-minded ally. Similarly, former Taiwan Vice President Annette Liu viewed Taiwan's soft power as consisting of five elements – human rights, democracy, peace, love, and high technology. But how does democracy fit into Taiwan's identity, and how can it be used to strengthen international relations? Today we will talk to Dr. Shelley Rigger about democracy in Taiwan and how it acts as a source of soft power. So let's get into it. Hello everyone and welcome to Taiwan Salon, the global Taiwan Institute's cultural policy and soft power podcast. My name is Adrian Wu, the host of Taiwan Salon and a research assistant at GTI. And I'm Zoe Weaver-Lee, a program assistant at GTI. Today we are joined by Shelley Rigger, the Brown Professor of Political Science at Davidson College and a leading expert on Taiwanese domestic politics. In addition to her position as an advisor at GTI, Dr. Rigger is a non-resident fellow of the China Policy Institute at Nottingham University and a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. She is also a director of the Taiwan Fund and the author of multiple books and articles on Taiwan, including Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island, Global Powerhouse, and her most recent book, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. Just like the first episode, I'd like to begin somewhat broadly to set the stage for Taiwan's current efforts related to soft power. So based on Joseph S. Nye's definition, soft power comes from three sources, culture, political values, and foreign policy. In your opinion, what are the key sources of Taiwan's soft power? It's interesting to think about that because we kind of have to differentiate who the target or the potential audience for that soft power might be. So thinking in kind of global terms, so Taiwan's soft power vis-a-vis the U.S., uh, people in Japan, Australia, Europe, the U.K., I think democracy is a really important part of Taiwan's soft power. So the way that Taiwan embraced democracy after decades of authoritarianism, you know, is a really popular story in lots of places. I think Taiwan's soft power vis-a-vis the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is really more cultural. And while we often think of Taiwan as kind of lacking soft power in the mainland, And, you know, the idea being that instead of kind of admiring Taiwan, a lot of people in mainland China uh, resent Taiwan or have, you know, these very sort of politicized ideas about it. Actually, there are many people in the PRC who have at least until very recently, and I think um, at least some of them still do and, and would do even more in the future, look at Taiwan as an example of the a well-preserved Han cultural place, you know? So, um, and this is controversial in Taiwan, and I'm sure we'll discuss this as we go along. You know, not everybody in Taiwan is totally comfortable with that. But I think it is an important 
source of soft power for Taiwan, you know, to present to uh, people in the mainland, you know, look, we are not your enemy. We are, in fact, um, in some ways, an example of what a Sinophone community can be with many attributes of traditional Sinophone or Sinitic culture never having been undermined, destroyed, uh, polluted by uh, this sort of ideology that doesn't come from China, which is communism. I mean, kind of going along with that, there there are some who believe that democracy and, and human rights are essential to Taiwan's soft power, kind of as you're saying here, and that democracy should be used to promote Taiwan abroad and build bridges between Taiwan and the international community. So do you agree with this approach? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, because democracies are imperiled everywhere, you know, the United States being no exception. And in some ways, I think democracy is stronger in Taiwan than in a lot of other places, precisely because people in Taiwan see the alternative. You know, the alternative is leaning over them every day. So in the U.S., a lot of people think, you know, well, you know, I want democracy to work my way. I want my people to be always the winners. And, you know, if I don't get the outcomes that I want, then I'm going to invade the Capitol. And I'm going to say, I'm, you know, the people who were in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, many of them, I think, genuinely imagine that that's somehow how it's supposed to work, you know? Um, but I don't think it's so easy for people in Taiwan to make that mistake because they are not, uh, they don't have the leisure to screw this up. You know, Taiwan falls apart. People, you know, there's a violent insurrection against the Taiwanese government. And there is somebody waiting on the other side of the strait to say, okay, obviously democracy has failed and we will bring you what you need, which is political stability and strong leadership. So, you know, ironically, I think Taiwan is <laughs> in some ways a, a better advocate or, or uh, f- face for democracy internationally than a lot of other places that we have historically thought were kind of the flagships, you know, the U.S. on the presidential side and then the U.K. on the parliamentary side. You know, U.K. democracy is also a dog's breakfast at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, Taiwan should really be out there reminding us, for example, uh, there was a there was a really powerful strand of bad thinking during the worst of the kind of initial COVID you know, who knows whether COVID will come back at us and be worse in the future. So I'm superstitious. I'm not going to say, you know, the worst of COVID is behind us. But in that first year, there were a lot of people who were ready to say, okay, authoritarian governments are better at dealing with this than democracies. And, you know, Taiwan's counter example to that of a democracy that in the early stages, and I would argue even now when Taiwan is allowing COVID to happen in and to Taiwan, that was still a that's 
still better than the performance of authoritarian states or anyway, it's just as good. So, you know, I think it's super important right now for Taiwan to be out there making the point, you know, democracy is not a bad system for dealing with something even as potentially catastrophic and hard to manage as COVID. Democracies can do it. It's not democracy that's the problem here. And Taiwan stands as a great example of that. For Taiwanese, advocating for democratic values is more than just lip service. It's also a core part of Taiwanese identity. Democracy is Taiwan's identity at this point. And it really doesn't matter so much who your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were. What matters is if you are on board for this journey of you know, self-government, individual freedom, self-control in order to thrive as a community, then, you know, that's your Taiwan identity right there. And I realize that that's, you know, not by any means a, a, a full discussion and that there are plenty of people who are thinking about that in a really different way. But I think from the point of view of kind of American looking at Taiwan and especially U.S. policymakers looking at Taiwan, the sort of obsession with lines on a graph or, uh, you know, oh, if they call themselves Taiwanese, does this mean that, you know, we have to worry about Taiwan busting a move and going for independence? Like all of that is, I think that's looking at the wrong, that's focusing on the wrong thing. What we should focus on is, look, it's a, we're already there. Taiwanese people want to govern themselves. And whether that means that they have a, a cultural identity that is fully distinct from anything that exists or ever has existed in mainland China. That's an interesting topic for academics and for cultural studies people to talk about. But for U.S. policymakers, I think it is enough that Taiwan is a a self-governing democracy, liberal democracy with, you know, free people living in it, uh, who are, however, smart enough to realize that there are limits to what they can ask for from their government and limits to what their government can say and do, you know, that, that to me is the most important part of the picture. You know, you can graph Taiwan identity going up and up, but the graph for Taiwan independence is much flatter because people know, you know, this is really dangerous. If you want to, if you want to say you're for Taiwan independence and you want to, uh, you want your government to enact that in some kind of formal way, you got to be aware of what that's going to cost you. And people are. And so, yeah, when I when I see people, you know, treating those two things as interchangeable, as somehow signifying the same thing, that's just as dumb as, you know, saying, okay, I guess Taiwanese people are all Chinese then, as if the concept of Chinese and China itself is not super complicated. I think you brought up some really good points about how Taiwanese people have seen the other side. So it is very tightly intertwined with Taiwanese identity. But what are also some of the opportunities or challenges of using democracy to promote Taiwan? Has the pressure for Taiwan to act as a model for democracy had any domestic effects on Taiwan, in your opinion? 
Well, one thing that I always find really kind of disheartening and makes my, uh, like, even right now, I'm sitting here in my chair with my arms waving in the air, you know, <laughs> um, is that precisely because democracy has become such a high value and such as a political scientist whose name I'm not going to be able to pull out of my hat right now, once called it a cheerleader word, it has become something that political parties in Taiwan fight about. So the um, most ferocious critique, you know, the, the kind of the arrow that hits its target every time critique that a party out of power can make against the party in power in Taiwan is that they're being undemocratic. And the DPP did it to Li Donghui after 1996, at which point Taiwan was functioning pretty democratically. The KMT did it to Chen Shui-bian and the man ended up in prison. The DPP did it to Ma Ying-jeou during the Ma administration. And the KMT is say, it makes these accusations sometimes against the Thai administration as well. And I just think this is absolutely terrible. This is Taiwan's signal virtue in the international system. And to constantly call it into question and to give Taiwan's enemies ammunition for their own claim that, ah, you know, Taiwan's not all that great. It's not even really democratic. Look, I can pull all these quotes out of the Liberty Times or out of Lian He Bao to show you that Taiwan is not that democratic because Taiwanese people are constantly saying this. That to me is the most self-destructive thing that Taiwan's political parties do, and they both do it, or I mean, both of the major parties do it, and they do it routinely. And I think that is partially due to the fact that precisely because Taiwan's democracy is the thing that, you know, allows it to have this claim on the love and attention of many countries around the world, it is that arrow that hits its target every single time. I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because, um, I mean, we also kind of want to discuss the other side of that, where democratic countries like the U.S. often use Taiwan's status as a like-minded democratic ally, you know, to argue for closer relations. So, I mean, have you noticed any trends in these arguments? Are they becoming more common in recent years and are they helpful at all? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, to me, if it were up to me, U.S. policy would be all about Taiwan's democracy, and it would be all about the value of allowing human individuals and human communities, as they understand themselves, to be self-determining and free to the maximum extent that is consistent with the rights of others, right? Um, and... That's why we should care about Ukraine too. You know, why uh, there are plenty of people who are just kind of saying, you know, what is Ukraine to me? And maybe Ukraine is kind of like Russia light. And so, you know, what maybe we should just let this. But the thing is that whatever the past history of Ukraine or Taiwan 
may have been and wherever their ancestors may have come from and whatever their language may be in relation to the language spoken somewhere else, whatever their cultural heritage and their, um, you know, in China, they love to talk about the bloodline, whatever your bloodline, these are human communities that have chosen self-determination. They have chosen to govern themselves together outside of those other uh, definitions. And also in both Ukraine and Taiwan, for all of their flaws and limitations within those human communities, individual human beings were getting and in Taiwan are getting and, and still in Ukraine to the extent to which, you know, you can exercise these rights and freedoms in wartime people were and are getting the maximum freedom to determine their own way through life consistent with the rights of others. So, you know, both from a sort of uh, Wilsonian self-determination idea and from a much older idea of individual freedom and, and democracy as the kind of guarantor of liberty, liberty, these are, you know, these are things that we should feel good about defending, you know? Um, so I love it when people use Taiwan's democracy as the rationale for the U.S. to support it. It is consistent with the values that Americans, by and large, are supposed to embrace. What I don't like to hear and what I hear increasingly, so you asked me about trends. Um, I think in the Biden administration, when I when I listen to you know President Biden and others at the top of the administration talking, mostly what I hear is, look, Taiwan is a good player in the international community. It is a democracy. It is a good economic partner and political partner for U.S. and like-minded countries. That's mostly what I hear. But there is this um, inc this strong other strand in the way people talk about Taiwan. Uh, it is present in some voices in this administration. It was loud in the previous administration. It's strongest in kind of in the Pentagon, uh, but strongest of all in Congress which is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And somebody told me that Taiwan is enemies with China and I have decided that China is my enemy. So that's why Taiwan is my friend. And that is terrible. That puts Taiwan on the tip of, an, of a spear that somebody is excited to jab into China. And whatever is on the tip of that spear dies in the process. You know, so and to me, that kind of logic, which says that Taiwan is a kind of strategic asset for the U.S. to use in some kind of competition with China is absolutely antithetical to the idea of democracy itself. Like Taiwanese people want to they want to go to war with China to help the U.S. suppress the rise of the of the PRC. They make that decision. We don't make that decision for them, you know. 
And I, I look at the past 30 years of Taiwanese history, and what I see is Taiwanese leaders working constantly to avoid being in that position and working constantly to kind of mitigate the conflict or 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 competition, the geostrategic competition between the U.S. and China, short of just surrendering to what the PRC is seeking, right? You know, Taiwan's not going to give in to the PRC, but Taiwan does not want to be the poison dart frog that gets bled out onto this spear that the U.S. is going to throw at Beijing. And Taiwanese leaders have been at pains not to, um, you know, to try to avoid that kind of an outcome. So a lot of what I hear um, in sort of the public discourse about Taiwan as a geopolitical or geostrategic asset, and, you know, we got to make the Taiwans do this or that, uh, you know, we should, we should make them move their, um, their chip fabs to the U.S. so that, you know, there's, there's no strategic danger. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, who do you think you are? So that's the thing that worries me. Like, I, I don't have any problem with Taiwan um, touting its democracy around the world. And even, and, and what I wish is that people in Taiwan would stop kind of abusing that, you know, like I said before, for their domestic political competition. Um, but the alternative which has emerged to democracy as Taiwan's kind of signal virtue is this other thing. And that other thing is not good for Taiwan. Despite the role that democracy can play in bringing like-minded allies together, China remains a global economic powerhouse that few countries are willing to go against, with Lithuania being one of the recent exceptions. This begs the question, does using democracy as an argument in favor of supporting Taiwan have a limit to its effectiveness? Yeah, of course it does. That's a really important point because a lot of countries are not, um, they're not impressed <laughs> by your democracy. They're not democratic themselves and they don't really want to be. And, you know, China, the PRC, I mean to say the PRC has its kind of natural partners in many regimes that are seeking to control their own populations in ways similar to how the PRC controls its population. So, you know, being a democracy is not, it's not going to impress everybody. Um, Moreover, even among those countries that would like to prioritize political and sort of values considerations ahead of other stuff. The truth of the matter is, you know, as you say, the PRC is a really important economic actor in the global community. And it is everyone's goal is to somehow balance these two things. And what I would say to that is we have, you know, everybody has balanced those two things up to now. For 70 years, Taiwan has been doing its own thing. And for, you know, 30 some, I can never do the math in my head, right? Quicky quick, but you know what I mean? For a really long time, um, Taiwan's been hanging in there as a democracy. So the PRC will, of course, press this harder and harder. But 
it is not the case that we have lost the ability to keep these two things in tension is what I would say. The world has kept these two things in tension. The China, the PRC has become economically more powerful. And what I want to say is that in that process, which as we all know, Taiwanese played a humongous role, right? In making economic opportunity and globalization real for the PRC at the end of a period of time when PRC leaders had consistently crushed every opportunity that PRC people had to participate in the global economy or even to develop uh, the PRC's domestic economy in a uh, healthy way. You know, Taiwanese played a big role in that. Uh, and, And as a result, People in the PRC have a higher standard of living. They have better health conditions. You know, they have a better diet. It's, it's been good for the PRC, but it has enabled Beijing, the leadership of the PRC, the Chinese Communist Party leadership, to be more assertive on the global scene. And so I think what people uh, around the world are experiencing is a heightened sense of, oh no, we have to choose this thing that this thing that we've kept in tension for a long time. It's not sustainable anymore. We can't keep it in tension because uh, the PRC has become too powerful. And, um, you know, yeah, it's getting harder, but it's interesting that just as it's getting harder, we're seeing more pushback uh, in Europe, in North America, you know, not everywhere, but among the nations that I think Beijing has been uh, most determined to persuade, the tide seems possibly to be turning in the other direction. And I don't think it's turning in the other direction because of Taiwan. I think what's happening is um, the, the magnitude and velocity of China's economic rise has destabilized economic and political conditions throughout the developed world. And there is a rising sense that this can't continue or we are all going to be in big trouble. Well, I am really glad you brought that up, uh, especially coming to the end of our discussion here. Um, for our listeners, if you haven't read Dr. Rigger's book, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, uh, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise, I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, It lays out very well what Dr. Rigger is discussing here. Um, But with that, um, I I would, of course, like to thank you, Dr. Rigger, for your incredible comprehensive overview that you've given us here today. But of course, we would like to close perhaps with an optimistic point of view of the future. Um, if it's not optimistic, of course, please share those thoughts as well. But we'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, the future of Taiwan's soft power. You know, what are some of the challenges that you expect Taiwan to face or even the opportunities that they should take advantage of? Yeah, I think Taiwan's soft power has actually grown a great deal over just the last couple of years, at least outside of mainland China. So within mainland China, you know, there's at the moment uh, a political mood, which makes it very difficult for people to enjoy the kind of interactions with uh, Taiwanese individuals and with Taiwanese institutions and sort of cultural products that they had enjoyed in previous 
decades. So, you know, that's Xi Jinping, that's where the PRC is. So in terms of cross-strait, I think Taiwan's soft power is maybe a little bit on hold at the moment, although I hope that things will will improve in cross-strait relations and, and mainland Chinese people will once again be able to enjoy the artists and musicians and other kind of cultural products that have played such an important role in reawakening popular culture on the mainland. But thinking about that global dimension, I think Taiwan has really benefited a great deal in terms of its soft power and its ability to project soft power in the last couple of years because of the attention it's receiving internationally for its COVID response and also as a result of the world's sort of growing awareness that uh, China, that that the PRC is leaning out and leaning over Taiwan among other other places. So I think you hear more about Taiwan in Europe, in the US. You know, in the US, it's always been kind of a, a front page. You know, if it's not on the front page of the news section, it's on the front page of the business section once a month. You know, it's been that way for a long time. And in fact, uh, my earlier book, Why Taiwan Matters, I wrote that in part to help people understand, like, what is up with this country? Like, why is it in the paper all the time? Why are they always talking about Taiwan? Why do, why do you know, people don't talk about Ghana, similar size country every day. Um, so what's up with that? You know, that's something that I think is uh, worth thinking about. But uh, in Europe, it has not been the case that Taiwan was on the front page all the time, because Europeans do not have the same kind of Pacific orientation, nor do they have that kind of world policeman outlook that the U.S. has. But I find among my colleagues in Europe who study Taiwan, and Europe has a very, very vibrant, wonderful academic culture of Taiwan studies and a wonderful organization called the European Association for Taiwan Studies that, uh, you know, is just really... There's, there's, in some ways, I feel like the um, the community there is even more vibrant than than the North American community in Taiwan studies. And what they report is that increasingly Taiwan is on the front page, or at least it's on the second or third page of the the news. And I realize that I sound like old people right now talking about like newspapers as a physical object. <laughs> But you know what I mean, right? You know that people are paying more attention in Europe as well. And that has to do both with the increasing attention to China, much of which is kind of, if not negative, at least a little bit skeptical or concerned, and with Taiwan's success in the COVID crisis, which I think the Taiwanese government did a really good job of bringing to the awareness of people around the world. I think ending on that note of optimism is a great way to close things. So thank you so much, Dr. Rigger, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Rigger. We, we very, very much appreciate your time.
Throughout the course of this interview, Dr. Rigger has given us a comprehensive understanding of how democratic values tie into Taiwan's international engagement. Thank you so much to Dr. Rigger for joining us, and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. This podcast was made possible in part by the Taiwan Academy's Spotlight Taiwan Grant. Production assistance is from Adrian Wu and Zoe Weaver-Lee. Thank you also to our staff and interns for your support in making this episode possible. Intro and background music is by I'm Difficult, Wosher Di Cho Shaomu. The Global Taiwan Institute is a 501c3 think tank located in Washington, D.C. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org, where you can find information about our Global Taiwan Brief and our frequent public seminars. You can also listen to more episodes of Taiwan Salon on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts, as well as on our website's podcast page. Thank you for listening, and until next time.